Hello. Happy Monday, everybody. We've got a great podcast to start your week off. Hi, I'm joined with my co-host, Amy. Hello, everyone. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. Um, This podcast was a really great one. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. We sat down with Seth. Seth is 20, diagnosed Mm -hmm. with AML at 16. So um, he, he relapsed, had a stem cell transplant, quite just the journey um, with cancer. And um, he kind of shares it all with us, diagnosis and what that was like. And um, he just has this optimistic spirit about him. Mm -hmm. It just really radiates. He finds the joy in everything. Um, When I talked to him previously before recording this episode and just said, you know, what are you hoping listeners gain from this conversation and listening um, to, to you being on the podcast. And he said something along the lines of that from the deepest sorrows can come the deepest joy. Mm-hmm. It's pretty profound for a 20 year old yeah. young man to, yes. to, to feel that and think that has come from all of this. Yeah. But yeah, he brought a lot, um, a lot of wisdom to his conversation. I said it to him and you'll hear it in the podcast, but you, it sounds like you're talking to somebody who's lived years and years and years and years, just like a, I think he's like, a lot, like, like an 80 year old man. Yeah. So he just like, he has a lot of, um, optimism in his story and just highlights so many beautiful things in his really scary journey with yeah. cancer. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing that like listening to him. He just has a lot to share and it's a beautiful story. Yeah. And I did want to share too in the intro because we talked a little bit about it after we were done recording this episode. But um, so Seth is actually um, in nursing school right now. He and I think he talked about it while we were recording that he definitely didn't necessarily foresee nursing as a career Mm -hmm. path until he was really touched by nurses mm-hmm. um, at the hospital where he was treated. And it just so happened that while we were recording this episode, a nurse that he that really touched um, his soul and impacted him greatly, not just throughout treatment, but in, you know, his overall life and mm-hmm. why he wanted to be a nurse was there at in clinic. And so I kind of snuck away <laughs> <laughs> while you were talking to him and grabbed um, Ben. And um, Ben was able to come in and kind of share a few words with Seth. And that was a really special moment that kind of choked me up. Yeah. Um, But um, after we were done recording, Ben had said that um, actually his first week as a hemoc nurse was Seth's first week on the stem cell floor. So they shared, and I don't know if Seth necessarily knows that or not, but um, they spent a lot of time together. It sounded like they spent a lot of time together um, right as, you know, Ben had become a part of our, Hemoc family. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that Seth really impacted Ben. Yes. And he, I, it was really nice to hear him share that with Seth. So just a beautiful story. It is. Seth's such a great kid. He's not even a kid. He's 20. I know. He's a young man. Yeah. Really. <laughs> he's just going to do a wise soul. Mm-hmm. Wonderful things <laughs> in his will. life. And I hope that others can listen to his story and just uh, draw inspiration from it mm-hmm. and know that through some of the deepest, what feels like the deepest, darkest moments, um, like, like Seth says, can come great joy. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. All right. Cheers. Enjoy. (laughs) Okay, Seth. And you can hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, I started recording. So, Hi, Seth, and welcome to our podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Seth. Thank- Hello. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> okay, Seth, so I am wondering if we can just kind of start off with a little bit about you. So ha- you're a sophomore now at Marion University. Yeah. Study- so I'm a sophomore now at Marion University, and I'm studying uh, nursing, actually, Yeah. to go back into the field. Um, but yeah, I am on the podcast because I was diagnosed with cancer at 16, which was four years ago. Seems longer than that. Crazy. But yeah, only four years ago. You're 20? What? You're 20? 
Yeah. Wow. Believe it or not. That's crazy. That you're, just, you're, an, you're an adult. You're a young man. Yeah, <laughs> you're an old man. Funny, I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, so four years uh, ago, when you were 16, you were diagnosed with AML. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. And I, so leading up to my diagnosis, around a month before, um, there were a multitude, a variety of a lot of different vague symptoms that I was having. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them, I think the first one I can remember was my neck was really sore, which doesn't sound like cancer at all. <laughs> and so I told my mom that, and she had told me that I just slept on it wrong. Um, and I went to the doctor and they gave me some neck, neck exercises and told me it was just like a tight neck, no big deal, which makes sense because that, yeah, you really don't expect it to be cancer. Yeah. Um, and then from there, my acne was getting super bad at that point. Not necessarily like a lot of it, but I would just have a few spots that were super deep and super red and they would like, they would hurt to the touch. Mm. Um, so that was kind of weird too. So then we went to the dermatologist and was like, hello, hello, um, I've got all these spots over me and I don't know why. Yeah. And so they had said that I just had cystic acne and that that was a, just what I had, which was interesting because I never had a problem with acne before that. Yeah. Um, so, but I still at this time, I didn't think anything of it. I still thought it was just my body going haywire, taking a little vacation and going crazy. <laughs> yeah. And um, probably also thought the next stuff was totally unrelated. Right. Yeah. Right. You really, yeah. I don't think, which still to this day, I don't necessarily know if they were explicitly connected. I could have just had a sore neck. The yeah. Neck yeah. Went away right after chemo, but who knows? Um, and so then I also, by this time I was getting up to spring break and it was my brother's um, senior spring break trip. So we were going to Florida with him and his friend group. Uh, but right before we left, probably two or three days, I also was spiking a fever. And by this time, I was pooped. I was exhausted all the time mm-hmm. um, and just had no energy for anything. I would go to school and come home and just sleep all afternoon, Do wake up for a couple hours, eat dinner, do homework, go back to bed. Um, I had had a job before this, but I got too exhausted to a point where I was calling in to work and being like, hey, I, I can't come in today. Um, so just, yeah, that fatigue was probably the biggest factor that affected my life. Mm-hmm. And I noticed the most just because I was so exhausted. So then, let's see, I think that was all. But then from the dermatologist, they had gave me medicine from the doctor for the fever, he had given me medicine. And he had also talked about at this time when we were in the doctor, he had said that there was a possibility of it being mono or another virus. And so he had given me like bacterial medicine and then he said if that didn't work, then it was basically just a virus. And so then we flew or drove down to Florida and that car ride was probably the worst car ride I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Just because I had... Just feeling so crummy? Yeah, I had painful bruises on my face. Like, my neck was constantly in pain. I was exhausted, and there was no, like... There was no comfy position either. Yeah. And so it was just a hard, hard 13 hours, however long it took to get down there. But I remember being in a lot of pain down there. Um, Seth, were you worried at this time? Like, what is going on with my body? Or were you just like, okay, yeah, maybe this is mono. Maybe this is whatever, a virus. Um, I honestly had pretty good faith that it was just a virus or just something weird. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't really worried. I was, and I don't think I honestly had the privilege to be worried. Like, I was mainly just focusing on all the pain that I was in. I wasn't necessarily thinking what it was Mm -hmm. I was honestly just like yeah soaking in all the pain and really feeling that out and so my mom by this point was starting to get a little nervous of just what it was because I mean she has more experience with this just from being older and having more sure yeah experience with sickness and so she was getting worried just because it was starting to look a little bit more severe 
Um, and she had seen mono before, and this did not seem like mono to her, but she still didn't know what it was. So um, then we get to Florida, and we go in the condo, and probably the second day. At this point, I'm trying to sleep through the night, but I, like, wake up, and my sheets are just uh, soaked from all these night sweats. And so then I didn't really get a lot of good sleep at night, and then that would lead into the day where I also didn't get a lot of good sleep because I was just in pain and basically just yeah feeling real real crummy and so i remember one day this is the day that i actually got diagnosed we were driving to the beach and it was probably a 10 minute car ride so my mom had woken me up and we drove to the beach on the way there in the car in that 10 minutes i fell asleep and then we got to the beach and i remember walking out to the beach and it was just brutal like even I was so exhausted. All I wanted to do was lay down. So then once we finally did get to our little spot that we were at, I laid down and also fell asleep for hours on end. And so then that's when my mom was very worried to the point where she Googled all the symptoms that I was having, which isn't usually a good idea. <laughs> Honestly, in this case, it worked out for the better. Yeah. <laughs> she had found this test online that said if you can't, put your chin to your sternum, then that, like, you should take them in for risk of, oh, what was it? Some, some super serious meningitis, I think. Sure, yeah. We'll go with meningitis. There's some super severe disease. And so I, she pulled me aside, woke me up, and asked me to do that. And I could barely move my neck down. Like, I moved it maybe an inch, but nowhere near my sternum. Um... So after she saw that, she took me to the mm, urgent care, I think was the first place we went. And my mom was like, I think he has meningitis. Something's not, not right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so as soon as she said meningitis, they're like, we don't do that here. So then they sent me to an ER or some, I think an ER. And that is when they took me in. Um, and as soon as they, as soon as I came in, they did a bunch of blood tests and that was when I got, when I first heard the word cancer, I didn't actually get diagnosed at the hospital because it was too small. So they didn't have, I guess, I don't know how that works, but they didn't have the authority to diagnose it there. So I moved to another hospital after that. Wow. And what a day. got diagnosed. Yeah. Do you remember that? I'm sure that conversation. Yeah. Did it, yeah so yeah. I remember. In that first hospital, um, I'd come in and obviously still not really thinking about what could be. But then they'd taken my blood. It was a while. They came back and they said, hey, we lost your blood. We're going to need another sample. Uh, and so that's when my mom knew something was up because you don't just lose someone's blood. Like, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so she was starting to get super concerned at that point. And then he came in and told us it was cancer, and it was a very painful moment. Like, it had a lot of pain, but then at that same time, it was a really beautiful moment that me and my mom were able to sit there and just sob together and experience, like, that emotion together, I mm -hmm. think, was a really cool moment. And, like, it hurt, but it was also a rare experience that you don't have every day. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there's a beauty to that, for sure. Yeah. And Seth, how many siblings do you have? So I have four other siblings. So there's five and of the, you. Where do you, are you are you the baby or where do you fall? I'm right in the middle. So I have two younger. Okay. So I have a older sister who is oh, I think twenty three. We're going. Yeah. Twenty three, twenty four. <laughs> who and knows? Then, You're the middle. That's what you do now. Yeah. Yeah. And then my brother is at IPY and he is 22 I believe no yeah he's 22 yeah I think and then I'm 20 and then we have six years between the next two youngest yeah and both of them are adopted and so they it's been really good to have them because they are so much younger mm -hmm. that there's an innocence and just yeah style joy that comes with it and so that's been really cool yeah
But you're just, I'm just thinking and why I was asking that is because I knew that you came from a bigger family and just the busyness of a family already. And like you saying that kind of sad but beautiful moment for just you and your mom to be alone together and find that out together. Um, Yeah, it was. And I think that, like, even I remember when we were going to the ER, because my family was so busy and because I was so used to not, you just don't, you learn to be selfless, more selfless than a family of five. Yeah. Yeah. And so when they took me to the ER, even in my mind, I had, like, this notion in my mind that it was almost selfish to go to the ER because it was my brother's senior spring break trip. And, like, he obviously wanted to be with his friends or take the time away from that. And so I think it definitely played into it. But they, at the end of the day, like, my family was who I made me who I am today. They are made my hospital experience so incredible. They're, yeah, they're wonderful. <laughs> yeah. I re- you know, your mom and dad have been, you know, every clinic appointment by your side through all of this. But, yeah. Um, so you got you and your mom find out together, um, and then you know how long were you were you at the hospital until you? Yeah, I mean, did you guys go? Did you come home to Indiana right yeah. away? So yeah. So we um, we went to that first ER. They transferred us to another larger hospital where they officially diagnosed it as cancer and mm-hmm. or as acute myeloid leukemia mm-hmm. and. By that time, I think this was, I was in those two hospitals for a day. And then, obviously, with the severity of it, I don't remember the exact percentage. But I want to say it was definitely above, like, 50% of my cells were cancerous. I want to say, like, 80, possibly? Yeah. Like, I was running on very few, like, healthy cells. And so, because of that, they thought that treatment immediately was the best option. Mm-hmm. Um and so they actually, I took a medical helicopter to Riley Hospital um, probably 24 to 48 hours after I was first diagnosed Wow. Um, and began treatment at Riley, which that whole process was just incredibly efficient. Yeah. <laughs> and that was a blessing for sure. Do you remember like the emotions you felt was it just such a whirlwind of like because it just feels so fast-paced like you're at urgent care then you're at an ER then a new hospital then you're getting helied to you know back to Indiana were you scared or were was it just like this kind of whirlwind of yeah um so I honestly remember very few parts of it I was in and out of a lot of it um, well, it also sounds like you were bed. feeling pretty awful. Right. I was feeling, yeah, like when I was awake, I would feel terrible. And so I would try to sleep. I just, yeah, it was largely a blur. I was asleep for a large portion of it, too. Um, especially while I was in the hospitals because there wasn't necessarily a lot to do. And so I just took that time to definitely catch up on my sleep. And yeah. I remember the first the first part that I remember pretty clearly, honestly, was the medical helicopter. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was probably just because it was so interesting. (laughs) Like, I had never been in, uh, I don't think I'd been in a helicopter, period, and much less, like, a medical one. Yeah. That whole process was just astounding to me. And I remember there, yeah, my mom was with me in that helicopter. It was me, uh, and I was in, like, a bed in the back, and then there was a medical personnel medical professional and my mom and we were all in that medical helicopter um and i remember by this point i cried enough like i didn't have any more tears to cry necessarily yeah and so i definitely when i was first like told the diagnosis i was terrified yeah um just because i think anyone would be you have no idea what's going to happen mm-hmm um, and it's just that face of, like, you're looking at possible death right away. Mm-hmm. And so that is a scary thing to do. But luckily, I didn't necessarily ponder that a whole lot, um, especially for those first couple of days, because I did feel so crummy that I just was 
literally just trying to survive at that point, so I didn't think about it a lot. Yeah. I remember thinking about it more um, a couple months into my treatment. And I remember, yeah, I had more time and I felt better at that point to think about it. Mm -hmm. But to get back to that, yeah, so I was flown to Riley and then I began treatment there and I had a treatment regimen of, I would do chemo for a week, recover for like three weeks, and then I would go home for a break for a week. Mm -hmm. So overall, I did that four times. Overall, it was like a five month process. and then that, I remember during those five months was the time that I was thinking about, like, that's more, um, and still not the most I thought about death because later on, uh, there were more heavy circumstances, which I'll get to. But I remember within those first months, I got the negative news of cancer, but then I also got a lot of positive news about, like, genetic markers. Um, and the way my body was reacting. So feeling like this is an awful diagnosis, but like I have hope that there's good outcome for me and I can get treatment and be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. That that it was a terrible situation, but it was a good part. Like there was, there was good in the terrible situation and then there was a lot of good. Yeah. And so that was really good to hear. Um, and I'm naturally hope for the best too i think and so that helped when that hope was confirmed with like scientific evidence that my body was on the better side of things yeah like i can i can do this this doesn't have to be because also before you get cancer and i don't know how much your family was impacted by cancer prior to your diagnosis but it's just like cancer in a lot of people's mind equates to you know possible death that's the i mean that's where a lot of people's head go when they when they hear that. So for you to have to just process that diagnosis at first, but then hear, okay, like there's there's hope in this. I, you know, with what my genetic markers look like and what my oncologist is telling me that I can do this treatment and be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was definitely a, a factor. And I don't think, I don't remember any experience we had with cancer before this. Yeah. Um, I don't know of anyone in my family that had it. I think my grandparents have some small, like small types of cancer, but nothing severe, nothing like that at this point. So Um, you get diagnosed with AML, you, you fly back home to Indy, you start treatment, typical treatment for somebody with that diagnosis is, you know, like three years, right? Yeah. Okay. So then you... You go through treatment. It's more intense in the beginning that you, you kind of start to get into a maintenance phase where you're only having to come here once a month, right? Yeah, yeah. So I was treated. So there was that four months of chemo first. Yeah. And then I, after that, I was actually just in, they declared it remission at that point. And I didn't do any maintenance treatments after those four months. I went, I don't, at least I don't remember doing any. It was more just I would go back for checkups, but there was no more chemo after those four months. Um, they, and they, an important thing to know is that during the, during the first four months, they had mentioned a stem cell transplant um, and tested my family for that because it's most like, you're most likely to have genetic markers, matching genetic markers with your family. Yeah. And so that was also some positive news I received was that my brother was a perfect match. Um, so if that situation ever were to arise, then he would be the one to donate. Um, yeah. And so that was also really good news because I did have that backup. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that's a relief. <clears throat> Which was that your uh, brother that was on spring break? Like it was his senior <laughs> spring break. Was that that brother? Yeah, it was the brother. Yeah, and so that was really cool too because he. A cool experience because him and my sister were both getting to go tested and on the way there my dad was driving them and he had told me that they were like literally fighting about who could give uh, (laughs) because they both wanted to that's amazing siblings to have yeah yeah, i love that yeah and like and especially for my brother because he like i had 
ended his senior spring break trip. Like when I came back, my whole family came back with me. And so his senior spring break trip was ended early, ended on a terrible note. Like I, I messed it all up. Granted, nothing by my own choices, but still, in my mind, I had an idea that I had messed it up and that he was holding some sort of resentment towards me because of that. Yeah. Now, it was just, it was all in my head. Obviously, he didn't, he's incredible. He's an angel. He's glorious. And so he was very selfless about it and was just so loving. And so that was really cool to see, too. Well, and I don't think you're alone and feel like that's your specific circumstance with, you know, your brother's spring break. And I'm hearing you say, you know, we're a family of five and you have to be selfless. And I even felt bad my mom having to come to the ER. But I don't think that's your specific story. But I don't think you're alone in being a 16-year-old with a cancer diagnosis and feel like you're causing your family strife or hardships or, you know, yeah, because of me and, and cancer, this is happening to my family. Yeah. So I just, you know, love and appreciate you sh- sharing that because I'm sure there are listeners out there that, that feel the same, that absolutely look at what my cancer diagnosis is doing to, to my family mm-hmm. when, of course, that's not the thoughts going through your brother's mind. He doesn't care about his senior spring break at this point. He cares about his brother, who he loves. Yeah, yeah. which is interesting to see, like, how in that in that circumstance it does, you do almost project it on other people, like, oh, let me look at all the pain I'm causing, when really they're the one looking at you, like, look at all the pain you're going through, really, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it goes both ways, which is interesting. So, Seth, you went, like, eight months, right, into mm-hmm. what you thought yeah. was remission, and then talk about what happened yeah. next. So then they, I was in eight months, they told me remission, I was thrilled, having a good time, I was back at school at this point, um, and those eight months were honestly very hard for school. I felt disconnected, I felt like a poster child, um, so I didn't love those eight months while I was at school, and then almost exactly a year later after my initial diagnosis i was back for a monthly checkup and i received the news that my cancer had relapsed and that basically just means it came back and the hard thing about aml coming back is that the doctor had explained to me that if it comes back it's a lot harder to like the chances of surviving are a lot lower um and the risks are just much more severe and so this, during this regimen, was a lot scarier. This is when I thought about death probably the most. Um, Who were you and, with in clinic when you found that news out? Were you with your mom? I imagine so. I honestly can't remember. I yeah, I really don't remember yeah. getting told that I relapsed. I know that I did. Yeah. <laughs> Do you I, feel like your reaction? Um, you know, whether it was with your tears or just like thinking about death was similar to initially being diagnosed or would you even say worse? How would you compare the time? Um, so it was weird because I think it was worse because it was more severe. Yeah. yeah. But then I also think it wasn't as bad because it wasn't necessarily a shock. Yeah. Like it, I relapse had, hadn't been out of my mind. I had definitely thought about it during those days. Yeah. Um, and I also knew more what the hospital life was like at this point. So there's yeah. less mystery around that as well. Yeah. Um, so just different. Yeah. And different so, yeah, so there were good and bad parts. I think different parts of me took it different way. Yeah. Um, but I, so I received that news. And after that, we began, which this is on Riley's behalf. They were incredible about this. And I think this is one of the biggest blessings out at Riley, it was just the physicians there were so good. And as soon as I got the diagnosis of the relapse, I they took me into a room and we did this whole like treatment plan. And they clearly like wrote out all the risks, um, all the like steps that I have to do, all the possible side effects, just everything that I needed to know was written down and talked about, which was wonderful because I think that helped ease my mind with the mystery that surrounds the relapse and surrounds cancer in general is half of the scariest part is that you just don't know, you know? Yeah. I think about that uh, a lot, Seth, with our families that 
you know, I'm a teacher here, so I'm not yeah. medically trained. Same with Amy. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, lots of times they're talking about stuff where I'm like, I don't, I don't know what that means, or I'm asking mm-hmm. questions that I feel might be stupid questions when they're, you know, they're not. But um, right. So I just can't imagine being on the patient side where you're not medically trained and you're getting explained all of these things that are so foreign to you. It's already scary. And then I don't really understand this. So I'm just like putting all my trust and hope in you that you know what you're talking about. So I'm hearing you say, though, how important it was to like go in a room and sit down and have somebody, a physician, talk to you and map it out in ways that you can understand. Yeah, it was so important. I remember um, especially one. So the prior four months when I got the initial diagnosis, that was chemo. Yeah. And I remember when we talked about this next stage of treatment that I was going to go through, he compared those first four months, he called like little C chemo. And then he <laughs> said that I would receive a month of like big C chemo. And although it sounds dumb and it sounds childish, like that worked so well in my mind. Yeah. That I associated with, okay, this round is going to be much more severe. Like I'm going to have more side effects. I'm going to feel crappier. Yeah. Um, and so he just explaining it, and I'm sure there were more scientific ways to explain it, but realizing that you had kind of mentioned the little medical knowledge that a patient's family does have and adjusting his language to accommodate that was very helpful. Yeah. For sure. Because you can't go into this not knowing what you're going into. I mean. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. So we had that first meeting, and then, like I said, I received a month of big C chemo afterwards. <laughs> um, and that chemo just wiped me out. <laughs> I remember there was a like, solid week. I don't know. Do you know Peggy on, um, on patient? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patient? Uh-huh. Yeah. She's our colleague. Yeah. We so were- I remember one experience with her. She... By this, this is probably two weeks into the treatment, and so this is right when it, the chemo is starting to affect me. Um, and they'd given me a morphine pump the week before. Yeah. And I was on morphine that whole week for, like, these mouth sores that I had. Yeah. And I knew the at some point during this month, Peggy had told me that she was going to go on vacation. Um, and so she had come back, and... I'd asked her about this vacation that she went on. I was like, hey, how was it? I imagine it's so fun, all this stuff. And she's telling me it all very, like, very patiently, very just, I'm loving hearing about it. And my dad is laughing super hard at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm very confused on why my dad is laughing. And so I asked my dad, I'm like, what, what's happening? Why, what, what's so funny? And he actually explained to me that I had asked all those same questions the week before. That I literally this whole interaction with her that I did not, <laughs> not remember any of it. It's like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> yeah, like I, it was completely out of my mind. No idea, no recollection of it. Um, and so just yeah, there was solid. There was a solid week there, I guess, that I don't remember at all. Yeah, um, wild. <clears throat> and so it was definitely more intense. But and the other hard part of that is that they move you to the stem cell transplant side. Mm-hmm. Because after you receive a month of really heavy chemo, you then receive a stem cell transplant. And although the floor sounds so fun, and it was so fun, for sure. <laughs> You're a little optimistic. You I know. know. I just love you. Seth. You find, I, so Seth, I don't even know you very well, clearly. And I, it's, I love listening to you speak because you find joy in the crampiest situations. <laughs> Very optimistic. I love that. That is important. Mm -hmm. Okay, so they they move you to the stem cell side. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then what? Yeah, and the fun thing about this floor (laughs) is that you can't leave. (laughs) You're not allowed to leave. So super isolated. Super isolated. You are on, it doesn't even, like, the whole floor doesn't make a circle. And so even if you want to take laps, you just have to walk, like, back and forth. Yeah. And so it almost felt like a prison. Sounds bad, and I don't think it completely felt like it. But what I have in my mind right now is that it almost felt like a zoo, 
Not necessarily, not necessarily that people were coming to see me, like, and observe me, but just more of that idea of being contained. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that was really hard because I was ready to get out afterwards, mm-hmm. and you just can't. Did you, did you feel like you're, because you're, I mean, we we're just talking about this, you're naturally just such an optimistic, hopeful kid. And um, did you feel like that was tested during that time? Because I think a lot of our patients, and we've heard a lot of families and, um, you know, young adults, teenagers talk about how rough that is to feel so isolated and in, in, you know, to be inpatient that long. Do you remember feeling kind of tested during that time? Um, absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I remember one thing that the, oh, I cannot think, social workers did yeah. was um, give me a book called, oh, I don't remember what it's called, Making Your Life Choices or something. Yeah. But basically it, walks you through step by step what happens if you die and so it goes through like what you want your funeral to be like what you want your celebration of life to be like where you want your belongings to go just everything um and so when i was given that book i remember just every time i would try to fill it out i would end up like could not see the words because my eyes were filled with tears yeah and that's when it really hit that like death was right there and I'm lucky to be alive today but I and I'm so thankful I got that book because it did give me a voice and I still keep it today because I still think it's important to value your life even after you die and have those choices spoken mm-hmm. um, but it was just it's not easy to do at all mm-hmm. <laughs> not easy and so that was really hard to constantly look at that and constantly think that I wasn't going to be here anymore Yeah, was a scary thing. Yeah. Did you turn to anybody and talk through those things when you were feeling that way? Or did you Um, feel like you just internalized it? I, so I remember at this time, I also, I don't remember talking to anyone outwardly. Um, And really it would, I remember there was one night where, me and my mom, <laughs> I think The Bachelor was on, which is a sad, sad fact of the story, because I hate to admit that I enjoyed the show during the time. Hey, you know what? But, we all have our sinful things oh, that we divulge in. I, I may or may not have watched the same show this past Monday night. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And so I remember it being on, and me and my mom were watching it, and we just were like, she... We were snuggling the bed together, just sobbing um, and thinking about possible death with that. And so that is the only time that I really remember externalizing it to a person. Yeah. Um, I remember I oftentimes I, because this death was so imminent, it made me uh, grow in my Christian faith and think more about that. And so I think that's the way I processed it was through the lens of, religion and through the lens of like scripture mm-hmm. and so because i remember i remember i would spend like a lot of nights journaling and reading the bible and kind of putting my faith in that and trust in that because of this worldly thing yeah so that's that's yeah if i had to i still don't know if i ever completely processed it to be honest mm-hmm. yeah um but i think that was the way that i did process it a little bit was through that scope of Christianity. Well, and I would imagine too, Seth, you know, and I'm a teacher by trade, I'm not a psychologist or a counselor, but that there are going to be from diagnosis until, you know, your 99th birthday, (laughs) there are going to be different moments in your life that make this traumatic time resurface and where you have to reprocess it. And I think when you're sitting in the hospital, literally trying to survive, you're needing to kind of cope with those moments. But then there's going to be other times five years down the road or 
when you ring the bell or, you know, that it resurfaces and you're having to re-deal with it again. But I think it's important to talk about how you coped with it in the hospital mm-hmm. and what made you get yeah. through those moments. And then talking about, like you just said, I'm still not fully done coping with this. Yeah. Or have processed it fully. And like, even the insightfulness to know that, that like, you probably have continued work to do on how, you know, whether that's talking to a counselor or for you um, being in touch with God and reading the Bible, um, but that it's important. Like, I just certainly don't think anybody could navigate this alone or without any support or coping. I mean, would you maybe agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think that I didn't necessarily process it through my family, but I also know that if my family wasn't there, I can't see how I would have made it. Like I, they are who, they are why I'm here today. Here today, they form me, they love me. Like, especially my mom and dad, I was thinking of, during this time, obviously you have a lot of friendships that kind of fade away. You're not in school. You don't like see these people as regularly. And so there's a lot of distancing that happened from other people. But I remember feeling just so loved by my mom and dad almost too loved to a point where they wanted to stay in the hospital every night and i was like mom and dad no i don't want you here like you're loving me too much yeah which is just spoke volumes and still why i think i am the way today of where my optimism comes from where my joy comes from is that it's all because it's just receiving this outflow of love from someone else that i'm being loved so much that i just have too much of it that I want to love other people that same way. Yeah. If that makes sense. And that love has to transcend to hope. Like oh, giving absolutely. you hope yeah. and optimism for the whole process. Amy, were you going to say something? Oh, Seth, I was going to ask you um, if anything, you know, and maybe at the time you didn't know what you needed, but looking back and now that you're out of it, did you ever feel like because, you know, when you're on that unit and you're, you're at such a, vulnerable vulnerable like state and time in your life what could have been better like what did you need that maybe you weren't getting from even you know your doctors or your nurses or just support or friends or or friends or or just really anybody you know like what what was there that anybody could have done more like is is there anything you can think of or that you look and are like gosh Um. I wish I would have had this or you know for patients that are doing going through that right now what could I tell them and So I think, hmm. And even maybe like Amy ended that with, like it might be hard to think of what could have made a difference, but like what could you even say to somebody else that's sitting Mm -hmm. on that same floor feeling that same hopelessness? Yeah, I think the biggest thing, I feel like I were to say something to them, would probably just be to understand where your support is coming from. And, like, bury yourself there because mm-hmm. it is so hard um, and it's not an easy process. And, like, you had spoken about, Megan, is that it is very, very hard to do alone. And so realizing where you have support and really using that during that time I think is crucial because it is just such a hard time. Um but yeah. as far as my time in the hospital and things that could have gone better, I think my circumstance was a little weird because I was in a like children's hospital at 16 years old, and I'm, so a lot. Of I'm so the, excited you're bringing this up because I do want to talk about that. So keep, yeah, keep going though, Seth. Yeah, I think a lot of the events are programmed towards younger kids, and I remember there just being a. Not a lot of, like, my preferences spoken as far as, like, programs in the hospital go um, and activities that I would have wanted on the floor. Yeah. A lot of it was more just independently entertaining myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which was fine, but I think that definitely, and I, I think that's how a lot of teenagers are, too, and so it's a double-edged sword because I think a lot of teenagers do also just keep to themselves during yeah. that time. Yeah. But I remember a couple events. I remember one little thing that would come around that 
I'm sure you all know the name of it. I don't remember. Um, but it just comes around and it has like gifts and puzzles and little monkeys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the um, cart, the cart that rolls around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I remember that coming around every week, or whenever it came around, and I would be sleeping usually. And so they would knock and wake me up. And after a time, I t- was telling my dad that I was like, "This is terrible. They have nothing that I want. Yeah. They're waking me up." And I think better understanding those programs and who they're catering to and just talking to the patients I think is the biggest thing Mm -hmm. that they like making sure that the patients do feel well cared for and making sure that if they're having like desires or wishes to see certain movies or have certain food doing all you can to get those movies or food or whatever other activities they're into. You're not alone. Um, I think that's a nationwide, even globally. Because um, yeah, I do, I listen to a few other podcasts, like um, through like the BBC. So like you in the UK, and hearing like teens talk about. I mean, it's everywhere. It's all over the world where they feel like they're in a children's hospital. It's like you're too young to go um, in the adult world. And like Seth, a, a friend of mine, so I'm 33, a friend of mine just got diagnosed with cancer a few, you know, months ago, and he just had his yeah. first chemo, and he told me in the adult world, he's like, I feel so young in the adult world. He's 33, and he's, like, sitting next to seniors. So it's like, especially yeah. at 16, you, you're you too young to be in the adult world, too old to be in this in a children's hospital feel, and it's like, where is my place? And I think you're you're not alone in feeling that. And so, like, what can we do to make you guys feel like there's a spot for you? And like you said, your needs are being met. Which I think for me, I took that out. Like, I took that desire to have that spot felt through the nurses. And I remember especially night shift nurses were my pals. I... Mm-hmm. Like, night shift would come around, and I would love spending time with them. And I loved um, just, like, their personalities. Their, a lot of them were younger and were really good at connecting with me. Yeah. Um, and so that was really awesome. A couple ones that I remember in particular, they were the Olympics were going on. And so I remember, I think, I don't remember who was on shift, but I know I spent a decent amount of time with Libby, uh, oh, I can't if you ever think of her last name. Um, but she was impatient. And then there's also a male nurse named Ben. Mm-hmm. And he's actually an outpatient now, I think. Yeah. But yep. he, I remember one night, he was, we would watch the Olympics a decent amount, but I remember one night there was a time when my parents weren't there and I was just feeling alone. And so I was just hanging out in my room. I think I had some music going or whatever. And Ben came in, and I was working on a puzzle, and he just sat down and did what I was doing, which sounds super simple, but he didn't necessarily propose anything else. He just, like, fit right in, and we just listened to music and did this puzzle together. And I remember that being one of the most significant experiences just because I didn't feel like a kid in that moment. Like, it was – obviously, he's significantly older than me, but I still, like – there's still the youthfulness that was really good to connect with, I think. Yeah. And just like that he cares to just yeah, even sit that down he cares and hang with you. That. Right. And I think especially as like a male in the hospital, having a male nurse also yeah, was makes a difference, very influential probably. to see and very just like I felt represented. I felt. Yeah. And like so, I, do you think, did you want to be a nurse? I mean, we talked about it before we, or as we started the podcast, you're in nursing school right now. Did you want to do that prior yeah. to this? Prior to your diagnosis? So, honestly, no. It had never occurred to me. I had an experience with um, a couple of the doctors. Um, and so <laughs> I had an experience with them and I was talking to them and I was like, hey, I want to be a doctor. What do you think? And I told them about some of the, like, ideas that I had for the job. Yeah. And so I talked about, like, that patient interaction and that... They said be a nurse. <laughs> yeah. They, they basically all, all of them said be a nurse. 
so that was super interesting because I had gone in thinking that I wanted to be a doctor, thinking that I wanted to be more on the, like, official side of it, I guess. Yeah. And so... Well, that nurses was, are pretty official. They run the show, right? <laughs> they do, right, which was very humbling to see. And seeing just, like, how official and influential the nurses were with my time in the hospital, mm-hmm. yeah. I honestly was just unaware of that when mm-hmm. I wanted to be a doctor. And so that was really awesome to see. And so they, yeah, all told me to be a nurse. And so I was like, okay, then we'll be a nurse. Yeah. And I couldn't be more thankful for it. So through all, through this, everything that you've been through, and this, you know, we talked about earlier too, this was four years ago though, when you got diagnosed and you've since, you know, done a stem cell, you had the relapse and you've done a stem cell transplant and you're, you know, you're cancer free, you're off in college. If you think about your, this entire journey, um, we have a segment, our high, low segment. So I'm wondering Mm -hmm. if you can think about, you know, your entire journey, what would be your high and what would be your low? Oh, this will be fun. Okay. Um, So, hi, I think, to kind of reference earlier, would be the idea that I, well, actually, a lot of highs come to mind. Overall, like, there was a lot of pain, as I talked about earlier, but there was a lot of beauty and joy that came from it and lessons learned. so a couple in particular that I can think of were, um, they have fresh baked waffle cones at Riley. On, <laughs> you can like smell them through the hospital. <laughs> oh, they're incredible. Yeah, they're so good. And so I remember there were many times me and my mom would go down there and get ice cream and waffle cones. And that, although super simple, was a way to get out of my room and do something, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. which still was in the hospital, but at least act like I'm doing something. Um, So that was really good. I remember always looking forward to those days. And then the night that sticks out in particular, I think, of probably one of the most impactful nights. I don't know. I'm sure there were a lot, but the one that I still remember today, and I think was probably just because of the career I've chosen, but was the night that I, with Ben, that I talked about. Yeah feeling so cared for, feeling so represented, feeling like I was just so noticed. And so that was probably one of the highest nights because I had that support from outside of my family, which the support from my family was incredible, but it was just nice to see that support transcend uh, my family and into the hospital through the other nurses. Yeah. you had, like, your own little hospital family you've kind of created. Almost. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I was actually just thinking about it. Another high was um, there was a nurse, Bree Gimmicky. I don't think she's still at Riley. I'm not sure. But um, she was also very understanding of my age, and she actually watched a show called Game of Thrones. Which oh, I the best. Also <laughs> the best show there ever it's is. A, yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. A great show. Oh, um, man. And so that was also really cool because obviously it's not necessarily a children's show. And so she recognized that, like, I am more than a child, too. And so we were able to connect with that, and that was a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, and there were actually a decent amount of nurses who, were wa- who would watch that. So I remember after like the night or the day after the episode would come out, I would see who's on, on shift and whoever it was, we would like rehash the whole episode and do a recap of it. And I, that was so fun. So that was really good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then low, I think. Yeah. I'd probably say the lowest feeling I can remember is the constant confusion that my body was going through between being hungry, but also knowing that if I ate, I was going to throw up. Yeah. And that is just a weird state for your body to be in. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in that state for a lot of the time. Yeah. Do you have any tricks of the trade or things that you would do? Like just dealing with nausea and throwing up? Um, No, you just dealt with it. I mean, I remember I, so nausea medicine, sometimes takes some time mm-hmm. yeah and so one time to figure out which one works best for you but to like 
it takes some time to set in when you physically take it. Yeah. So um, the only thing I would suggest would be to make sure that just planning ahead of if you do want to eat, like planning ahead of when you're going to get the nausea medicine before in order for that to stay down. Yeah. Hey, Um, Seth. Yeah. Somebody just came in the room. I tracked somebody down. (laughs) Ben's here. Uh, Who? Oh, Ben, hello. <laughs> hello Seth. We're just doing a podcast, no big deal. Seth's, feel, Seth's famous. I feel famous yeah. just for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, Seth was just kind of sharing. We are talking about highs and lows and um, the how hard it is to be a teenager in, the hosp- in a children's hospital. Mm-hmm. And just talking about how you, I'm like going to cry saying this. I'm connected. Yeah, you just made a difference for him being mm-hmm. here. Um. But yeah, and I know Ben loves you, and I know he was here today, and it just, I mean, hello, I had to go grab him. (laughs) You had to, that's wonderful. Yeah, Yeah. I think Ben is incredible. He's so wonderful. Hey, Ben. Hey, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) No, you are too, man. Can you, I just really quick, too, because I know you're busy, Ben, and um, like what that means to you to to know that we have teenagers here, and to, to, he talked about a specific instance with like you just sitting down and doing a puzzle with him. Yeah. And that that meant a lot. Yeah, no, that definitely became our thing. Um, anytime <laughs> we could, we tried doing puzzles. <laughs> and, uh, um, we did try. We, <laughs> no, uh, it uh, made, I don't know, because we've talked before and he's explained to me like the impact I've had on him and he, obviously it's humbling, but um, it definitely makes you appreciate the job you have and it helps you and just more confirmation that you went into the right field. Um, and your family's impacted me just as much as you say that I've impacted you. I uh, I think about you guys all the time, and uh, you guys are really, really special people. Definitely hold a special place in my heart, for sure. Ah. Yeah, I think my family's pretty incredible, too. I'm going to have to second that. <laughs> and I think you're probably going to make a pretty incredible nurse. Yeah. For sure, man. Yeah. Well, thank you. I sure hope so. That's the goal. I don't know. Oh, you will. It'll happen. Gosh, this, this like, is the best note to end on, mm-hmm. <laughs> bud. Well, and I, I just love to, and I want to say this before um, we end, that when I sent you kind of that pre-interview form and just tried to get an idea of, like, what we could talk about, obviously sharing your story, but anything that you wanted to make sure that listeners gained or knew from your story and everything you've been through, and then you put... Um, Amy and I sat next to each other and I read this out loud and I go, oh my gosh, I just love Seth. He's just the best human. But you said just an awareness that the deepest joy can come from the deepest suffering. And I think that that's something that's really hard for people to see when they're in the muck of all of this, that out of all of this adversity and all this, you know, crappiness that you're going to come out a stronger human um, and yeah. like you said, there's some deep joy that can come out of that. Would you, obviously you would agree. Right. Yeah. So basically what I, I think that was the biggest takeaway that I learned from this whole, whole terrible situation is that the, you, it's that simple notion of just appreciating life. And I think once you are faced with the idea that you may not live, just simply being alive is like a high. And so realizing that although there is so much pain and so much suffering, it allows you to appreciate the simple things and the simple people in your life that just so much more because you don't necessarily, when you're not faced with the circumstances of possible death or like serious consequences, it's very easy to take it for granted. So it's just a nice, a nice wake up call that there will be a lot of suffering, but then, it also gives you the freedom to look back and see the privilege that it is to be alive, really. Which sounds simple and cheesy, but it is true. <laughs> well, Seth, listening to you, it doesn't sound simple and cheesy. It sounds wise. And then I'm speaking to an 80-year-old man who's lived a very <laughs> long life. You have a gift of being able to, we talked about this too, of just like finding the joy and the optimism and really w- listening to you speak in that knowing your story directly or as much as Megan or Ben do. It's 
I mean, it's a beautiful story. And you do really sound like you're an 80-year-old man. Tell, like, you've been living the life forever <laughs> and you're 20. Yeah, and it I is a good a thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, really. It's just that you can you've turned something very dark and ugly into beauty and the connections you've made with people here and the connections that you've made even with your family. Um, it's just, it's, it's very beautiful to listen to, honestly. And I think it's hard to tell people that are in the, like I was saying earlier, muck or thick of it to, that this optimism can happen at the end. And I think one of the best or maybe even perhaps only ways is to hear people like you that have been through it and get it share their stories Mm -hmm. like like you did today so thanks for doing that and we just all love you bud yeah oh thank you i love you guys too you guys are part of the reason i can be so optimistic and hopeful is because you guys treated me so well and loved me so well that i have no other choice except to give the love back because i just you guys gave me so much of it wow you're you're just you're the best can't say enough great things about you but (laughs) well thank you thank you i really appreciate that shout out to ben for joining yeah thanks ben you can go back to your important duties thanks for letting us steal you (laughs) hold on bud Thanks for listening to another episode of Lifting the Fog. As always, please email us at liftingthefog1, that's the number one, at gmail.com. We want to hear from you with your questions, concerns, thoughts, and ideas for future conversations and topics to dive into. And subscribe, whether it's on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, but subscribe and rate us. We would also love for you to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at liftingthefog1, and please hashtag us at hashtag liftingthefog. And as always, Lifting the Fog is an independent podcast. All information, thoughts, and opinions shared are for informational purposes only. No material on this podcast is intended to be substituted for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please always seek the advice of your qualified health provider with any questions that you may have. Thanks for tuning in.